Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. It was in real life he had a glass eye resulting from an operation to remove a cancerous tumor when he was three years old. But in spite of his missing eye, he was still a high school athlete. And one story he liked to tell, after being called out at third base during a baseball game, he removed his glass eye and handed it to the umpire and said something like, Here, you need this way more than I do. We left off last week talking about blind people. In one case, a man was born blind, but now because of Christ can see both physically and spiritually. But we also saw a group of religious leaders who, though they have always been able to see physically, they have been spiritually blind their entire lives. This is proven by the fact that instead of rejoicing over the miracle Jesus had performed in this man's life, they throw him out of the synagogue. We pick up our story in verse 35. Jesus heard they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I do believe, and he worshiped him. The blind man went from calling Jesus a man to a prophet of God to Lord, and now he finally worships him as God. By receiving worship, Jesus once again assumes deity. Jesus identified himself as the son of God, and the beggar believed and was saved. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus will say in chapter 10. Notice, though, the blind man did not see and believe. He heard and believed. But not only did he trust the Savior, he also worshipped him. And we must ask ourselves, if Jesus Christ is not God, then why did he accept worship? In the book of Revelation, John falls before the angel, and the angel says, Get up. You don't worship angels. In the book of Acts, Cornelius falls before Peter, and Peter says, Get up. You don't worship men. And after a great speech, the crowd said to Herod, This is the voice of a god and not of a man. Herod received that praise, and God struck him dead by being eaten with worms which is always a tip-off that you're not a deity. The first thing I want us to consider is last week, this man's testimony was, I once was blind, but now I see. He knew that a miracle had occurred, and he even called Jesus a prophet, but that in and of itself is not enough. He needed to take the next step and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior of his life, and here's what I mean. Many people today believe that Jesus is a wonderful teacher and a great moral example. Some will even go as far to as believe that he is who he says that he is. The thing is, you can believe all of those things with all of your heart and still miss heaven. A.W. Tozer writes, Religious instruction, however sound, is not enough by itself. It brings light, but it cannot impart sight. The assumption that light and sight are synonymous has brought spiritual tragedy to millions. If you think about it, 
the Pharisee looked straight at the light of the world for three solid years, but not one ray of light ever reached their inner beings. So light in itself is not enough. The inward operation of the Holy Spirit is necessary for saving faith. The gospel is light, but only the Spirit can bring sight. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus must become Lord of our lives if we are to be saved. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is Lord whether we acknowledge that or not. Listen to how Philippians 2.8 puts it. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that tell us? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that mean everybody? Absolutely. Judas one day will bow. Genghis Khan one day will bow. Napoleon one day will bow. All the queens and kings throughout history one day will bow. Hitler one day will bow. The Antichrist one day will bow. And even Satan one day will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's not an issue of Jesus being the Lord. He is already that. The only issue remaining is how we are related to him in that lordship. Is he the Lord of our life as we willingly and lovingly submit to him? Or will he be the Lord who will one day have to say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. There is no more important decision in life than that. But on the personal side, what does it look like if Jesus is truly the Lord of our lives? There should be three crucifixions in the life of every believer. The first and the one best known is that Christ was crucified for us. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. This crucifixion, this cross of Christ, was at the heart of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. The heart of his whole Christology was the fact that Jesus Christ came and then gave himself for us. For I determined, Paul said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we see that Jesus gave himself for us. That's the first crucifixion. The second crucifixion deals with our relationship to the world. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the second crucifixion is the fact that the world has been crucified to me, which is how we become aliens in this world. 
This is why you don't fit in with non-believers. I've told this story many years ago when I was at work casing mail, minding my own business, when my supervisor walked up to me and thrust a magazine cover of a half-naked woman right in my face. And he said, what do you think about that, preacher? What happened next had to be the Holy Spirit. I immediately turned to him and quoted 1 John 2.17, which says, And the world is passing away in the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God abides forever. I wish you could have seen his face. He just looked at me for a few seconds and then said, I'm going to leave you alone now, and then he walked off. But in all seriousness, I'm quite convinced that there are many people in the Church of God Universal today who may have grasped the concept of the death of Christ and go about glibly declaring that Jesus died for them, and yet they don't even faintly perceive the fact that this also means that the world should be crucified to them also. When the New Testament speaks of the world, it's not referring to the created universe or the stars or the clouds or the mountains or flowers, but rather almost always the world system. The Bible is talking about the corrupt system of this world with all of its desires, with all of its vain and false and selfish and corrupt desires, its aims and goals and purposes, its self-centeredness and its egotism, the world in the scripture is the whole corrupt system passed down from father to child through all the centuries. The result of man's rebellion against God has been the establishment of a whole world system, which the Bible clearly says is passing away. The Bible says that if we are Christians, the world has been crucified to us and it is therefore dead to us. It's somewhat like a man who greatly loves a woman, but one day she dies, perhaps even in his arms. He looks down at her body, which just a moment ago was warm and moving. Now all is silent. The light has gone from her eyes. Perhaps if he really loved her, he might even yet smother her face with kisses. But wait for just one hour, and that body will grow cold. And a little longer, it will no longer be soft, but now stiff and cold wait but a few days and it will begin to stink and rot a few days later you would not be able to stand in the same room with it that's what the bible says should be happening in every believer's life concerning the whole world system with all of its vaunted success and its goals its glories and its values should be more and more repulsive to us as we grow in our Christian faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. So have you reached the goals in your life that you set? Have you gotten as much out of life as what you wanted? If we were wise, we would stop and see the stop that struggle and cease trying to get out of this world what we want. We need to understand that success isn't how much I can get from the world, but rather how much I can give to the world. For the third crucifixion in the life and experience of the believer, we go back again to Paul's words in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
Christ is crucified for us in substitution, but Paul goes deeper into the mystery of Christ and says that if we want to understand the profound meaning of the cross, we'll have to see not just substitution, but also identification. We will have to see not only Jesus dying in our place, but also ourselves on that cross dying with Jesus. If Jesus merely died instead of us, then Jesus will merely rise instead of us. The scripture says we are crucified with Christ so that we may be raised with Christ. If there is no identification in the cross, there will be no identification in the resurrection. This is part of the very essence of the theology of Paul the Apostle. Now, everyone would like to have an abundant life. And Jesus will even say in the next chapter, I have come that they may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. But most people never seem to grasp how to have this abundant life. This is how. We live in proportion as we die. If you would have a Christian abundant life, then what you must do is seek an abundant death in Jesus Christ. That's always the law of the spiritual world. We, live by, we rise by descending. We live by dying. We receive by giving. This is the law of the kingdom of God. Jesus often has said that if we will lose our life, we'll find it, while those who find it will ultimately lose it. If we are seeking to hold on to this life, one day we are going to lose it. But if you are willing to give that up for the sake of the kingdom, you will find that abundant life. That means we need to ask God to slay our old nature, which is keeping us from enjoying the abundant life that Christ came to give us. If you imagine a weightlifter, a strength lifter barbell loaded with heavy weights, you might imagine stress on one side of the bar and anxiety on the other side of the bar. Those are the primary weights, but they're heavy with unbelief is what they are attached to. We feel stress and anxiety because of our unbelief in God's ability to really take care of us. Do I really believe that God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble? Do I really believe that God works out all things for the good to those that love him? Do I really believe that nothing can separate me from the love of God? Do I really believe that God's mercies are new every morning? These are all things that should be both evident and growing if Jesus truly is the Lord of our lives. Otherwise, your life will have no ultimate meaning or purpose regardless of how successful you may be on this side of eternity. Why? Because the Bible says that God has put eternity into the heart of man. That's why when you look at a sunset or a newborn baby or you hear a piece of music that brings tears to your eyes, you know in the deepest part of you there has to be something more after we die. And only Jesus can fill that void. In the late 1940s, Charles Templeton was a close friend and preaching associate of Billy Graham. 
He effectively preached the gospel to large crowds in many arenas. However, intellectual doubts began to nag at him. He questioned the truth of Scripture and other core Christian doctrines. He finally abandoned his faith and made an unsuccessful attempt to persuade Billy Graham to do the same. He felt sorry for Billy and commented, Billy committed intellectual suicide by closing his mind. Templeton resigned from the ministry and became a novelist and a news commentator. He also wrote a critique of the Christian faith entitled, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Journalist Lee Strobel interviewed him for his book, The Case for Faith. Templeton at this time was 83 and suffering from Alzheimer's disease and actually died just two years later. But he revealed some of the reasons why he left the faith. He said, I started considering the plagues that sweep across the parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill more often than not, painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten. And it just became crystal clear to me that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there was ever a deity who loves us. Lee Strobel then asked him how, about Jesus and was surprised at his response. Temple believed Jesus lived but never claimed himself to be God. Templeton said, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or any of my readings. He's the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. Templeton's eyes then filled with tears and he wept freely and was unable to speak anymore. Don't let that be you today. Just don't admire Jesus. Make him your Lord. Verse 39, please. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see. Therefore, your sin remains. You may be thinking, wait, I thought Jesus came to save the world and not judge it. What about John 3.16 where we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. And the next verse says, For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world may be saved. Verse 39 of our text this morning does not contradict John 3.17. Why not? The reason for the Lord's coming was salvation, but the result of his coming was condemnation of those who would not believe. Think of it this way. The same sun that melts butter also hardens clay. So far from being contradictory, those two truths are complementary. They are two sides of the same reality. To reject Jesus' peace is to receive his punishment. To reject his grace is to receive his justice. To reject his mercy is to receive his wrath. To reject his love is to receive his anger. 
And to reject his forgiveness is to receive his judgment. While Jesus came to save, not to condemn, those who reject him condemn themselves and subject themselves to the judgment. Now, I will admit, at first glance, Jesus' statement for judgment I came in this world does seem to contradict John 3.17. But the slight difference between the Greek words Christus in John 3.17 and Crema in John 9.39 is significant. You see, Christus is the act of judging, while Crema is the result of that judgment. It was like saying, I didn't come into this world in a judging capacity. But how you will respond to me can lead to your condemnation. In John 3.17, Jesus declared that his purpose for coming to the earth was not to hold people accountable for sin or set in judgment. He will do that upon his return. Leon Morris, one of the best commentators on the Gospel of John, says, His meaning is that they have enough spiritual knowledge to be held responsible. Had they acted on the best knowledge they had, they would have welcomed the Son of God. But they did not act on this. They claimed to have sight, but acted like the blind. Therefore, their sin is not taken away. It remains with them. And really, blindness would at least be an excuse for not knowing what was going on. But they did know what was going on. Jesus had performed many miracles, and the religious leaders ignored this evidence in order to not make the right decision. Now, this point was not lost on the Pharisees who challenged Jesus with the question, we are not blind too, are we? The structure of the question in the original language indicates the person asking anticipates a negative response. In other words, the Pharisees expected Jesus to say, why no, of course you're not blind. But Jesus didn't cooperate. He knew them to be spiritually blind. And so Jesus' response forms a sort of paradox. Those who are spiritually blind do not think they are missing anything and are therefore they deny their need. And those who see admit their need for spiritual sight. Spiritually blind people conceal their sinfulness in order to bluff themselves and everyone else into thinking they have no need of salvation. Whereas people with spiritual sight readily recognize their own sinfulness and their desperate need for a Savior. But instead, they were completely blind to their sinful condition. Os Guinness writes, In Carl Menninger's book, Whatever Became a Sin, was not only a startling title, but a sobering benchmark that gauged mankind's view of sin. He said, The notion of evil had slid from being sin theologically to being defined legally, to now being defined sickness, defined only in psychological categories. But here's what I want us to see. The danger of such thinking is their sin is compounding more and more, and they don't even realize it. That is how insidious sin is in the human nature. It never grows comatose, but like a deadly cancer, it destroys us from within and most people don't even realize it. Allow me to lay out a scenario of what this might look like. From the time they are children, most human beings come to understand, or at least experience in some way, that one moral misstep leads to another, the way that one sin often leads into other sins. For instance, let's say that a fifth grader caught in the act of stealing a classmate's iPod finds it easy to lie about the nature of the event by saying, 
I just want to know what size the hard drive was. I was going to give it back. And then to lie about the lie by insisting that they're telling the truth. Or a junior high boy who prides himself on being tougher and more manly than the other junior high boys, especially those who are still mistaken for their mother when they answer the phone, bullies the weak ones, calls them queers, and then crushes their soprano protest right back in their face with his fist. Or how about a high school girl who watches television when she should be studying and snaps at her parent who gestures at her unopened books? The next afternoon, she cheats on one of her semester exams. Then feeling irritable, she gets drunk with her friends, gossips even more maliciously about a person they don't like, and then drives her mother's car back home. Indeed, she drives it over the mailbox and partway through the end of the family garage. One more image, perhaps the best. If sin is an evil tree that yields corrupt fruit. Fools eventually discover what the wise have known for millennia. People rarely commit just single sins. Thieves and lies and lies about lies, macho pride and mockery and fighting and laziness and disrespect and cheating and alcohol abuse, these sins and products of these keep replicating and bunching together like a cluster of grapes on a vine. So as we finish up today, I ask us all, is there any hope? Many years ago on a cruise ship during the Christmas season, a group of passengers were gathered on the deck, and one of them looked and recognized that it was Ira Sankey, leaning against one of the great exhaust stacks of the ship, quietly sharing their company. The person who recognized him pointed him out as a celebrity singer of sorts for the rest of the crowd, and they imposed on him to sing them some Christmas hymn, if he would. Sankey, put on the spot by the small crowd, agreed to try and stepped forward trying to think of a song. It is said as he thought of what song to sing, he naturally realized that a Christmas hymn would be appropriate. But for some reason, another song pressed forward in his mind as the right one to sing. It was called the Shepherd's Song. The, the crowd gathered on the ship grew still, and they were greatly moved in their hearts as he sang this beautiful song to them that evening. It was said to be completely silent when he finished. But then a man moved forward, a rough-looking character. He began to ask Sankey some questions. He asked Sankey, had he been in the war? Had he been with the Union? Could he remember singing that very song one night while on guard duty back when he was in the war? To all these questions, Sankey answered yes. And the man explained that he had also been out that night, and he had been a soldier with the South. He recounted that while moving around, he had seen the young northern sentry very clearly in the moonlight that night, while he himself was well hidden in the shadows. He said that he said silently to himself, that is a dead soldier standing right there. And he had raised his rifle slowly from back in the shadows and placed his sight squarely on the young man with very little chance of missing at that close distance. But before he could squeeze off the shot, he recounted how the young sentry had suddenly began to sing the shepherd's song. And it was a beautiful thing to hear it on that quiet moonlit night, so he decided to wait. But as the song went by, it brought back to the, mind, the man's mind remembrances of many things gone, but now precious. 
He remembered of how his own well-loved mother used to sing that song to him. And inside of him started a lot of feelings and hurt and loss. He was overcome by the emotions that went through him. They were so many and so deep. And he was beginning to think about God. So he lowered the rifle and he felt himself unable to raise it again when the young Ira finished the song. So he just slipped quietly away in the moonlight and shadows of the night. As a rough-looking man on the deck of the steamer finished the story, he was, of course, choked up, and he admitted he was in the need of getting right with God then and there. He moved forward and embraced the man, and there they spoke together about what they needed to do for him to get saved. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to finally lay your entire life down as an offering to Christ? He is the Lord of all, and that is the only thing he will accept. If you need to do that in any capacity, please see me after service. And you are the Lord. You are majestic, and you are lifted up. And yet, Lord, you think on us. It's amazing. I just ask, Father, that anyone within the sound of my voice or in the podcast later, that in whatever capacity we need to make you Lord, whether it's for salvation, for sanctification, whatever that is, let us not get away from you until that happens. We ask in Christ's name, amen.